Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast, now brought to you by The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to one of the stars of the U.S. women's hockey team, Hillary Knight, playing at the World Championships in Michigan, but more to the point... They won their strike. We will find out how they did it. And this is something every jock for justice and everyone in the labor movement should want to know and should want to hear. Plus, I've got some choice words for the coach of the South Carolina Gamecocks who are in the Final Four. That would be Frank Martin. I've also got a Just Stand Up and a Just Sit Your Ass Down award. That's all Oakland Raider Nation based. Got some Kaepernick watch. All for your listening pleasure. But first, before we get Hillary Knight on the line, I want to break down just exactly why their labor victory is so important as we get ready for the U.S. Hockey World Championships in Michigan. So let's talk about how these U.S. women won their strike. Their push became about women in all sports standing up for themselves as athletes and workers. So here's what was won, and then we'll get Hillary Knight on the line. They won wages, which previously were a four-figure pittance and will now be $70,000 per year with bonus opportunities for Olympic and World Championship victories. Everyone on the team will also now get a pre-bonus base salary of $4,000 per month, quite a boost from the old rate of six grand a year every four years, which were just seen as wages for Olympic training. For the first time, they will also get the same amount of meal money as the men's team, a $50 per diem on non-travel days. Before this, the women's per diem was less than half that, around $23-$24. For the first time, their travel accommodations and insurance will be equal to the men as well. Most importantly for the team, there will finally be a committee aimed at developing youth hockey for girls and greater promotion for the women's game. So you see, they were standing up against a combination of insult and injury, and they won. This is what victory looks like. It's a landmark day for hockey, but it's also a landmark day for all women's sports. The message has been sent that not only if you fight you can win, but also if you fight, players and unions across the sports world will have your back. Let's let the last word go to the great Billie Jean King, who in addition to being a Hall of Fame tennis player and women's rights activist, also started the first ever sports union for women athletes. She tweeted, U.S. women's hockey is taking a stand for equality. Being a world-class athlete should not be treated as a part-time job. And now we have on the line one of the stars of the U.S. women's hockey team, the great Hillary Knight. Hillary Knight, such an honor to have you here on the Edge of Sports podcast. I know that right now as we speak, you're on a team bus about to take off. Really do appreciate the time. So what's the spirit on the team right now that you're at the Worlds? Well, we're extremely excited to just get this tournament started. Obviously, we had a a lot of ups and downs over the last 14 or 15 months, and especially in the last two weeks. But I think it's safe to say we can put that all behind us and we reached a historic feat, and now we're looking to reach another one. So you won, and you won because you were able to keep the team united. How were you guys able to do that, and was that ever a question? No, actually, that wasn't um, the hardest part. I think the hardest part was knowing that um, we 
could potentially not be representing our country um, and fulfilling the roster spot that we earned. But I think, you know, collectively our team was extremely passionate about our cause. We understood that it was something bigger than ourselves and something that we might not necessarily benefit as much as the younger generations will. So I think the combination of that and then obviously having a whole country and sort of worldwide support from different iconic um, people in and outside of sport really helped us stick together. But I think when we embarked on this journey over a year ago, we, we made a pact saying, you know, this we need to stick together for this, and this is the only way that we're going to get something like this accomplished. And we did, and that's why we're so successful. I now want to ask you three questions, and we can call it surprised or expected. Were you surprised to get solidarity from every damn sports union, male or female, in the United States? Um, yes, I was surprised. In so far as to think that, you know, this might not be a, a huge, I guess, national coverage, um, and people might not know what's going on, but pleasantly surprised to say. Were you surprised that USA Hockey was so aggressive to get a replacement team, a scab team, in your place? Um, expected. I think it's, at the end of the day, they're, they're trying to look at this saying, you know, we need to put a team on the ice to compete at world championships. And, you know, rightfully or wrongfully, that was going on uh, last two weeks, and that's part of where a lot of the stress came from. But at the end of the day, they did, they did manage to take a step forward and make a significant commitment to us for equitable support, and now we're ready to move on and compete with them. Were you surprised that as this was happening that everybody from girls who are in the USA Under-16 League to women who played in beer leagues were all standing strong and refusing to cross your picket line? Um, to be honest, I think that was expected. I can't emphasize enough how amazing the hockey community is and um, what it means to be a member of this community. It's huge. And um, as girls or women, they understood. And they knew that you know, some of them might never represent the United States um, in international competition. But they felt so strongly for, and passionately for what we were doing that they knew it was right to stand with us. And um, I'll forever be grateful for that. So let's talk about your team's chances in these worlds. Are there any concerns about rust on the team because you guys are just coming together now? And also, are there any concerns that if you guys do not win at all, that it'll be blamed somehow on the boycott? You know, you never blame the boycott for that. I think we've got a remarkable group of talented young women who are extremely disciplined and very, very fierce competitors. So at the end of the day, we're going to do whatever needs to be done in order to get the job done. And, um, we're extremely excited to, to kick this, this new start off on the right foot. But in addition, we know we know that we've never won a world championship on home soil. Oh, wow. I never thought of that. That's a good point. So um, no pressure to make history twice, but it's an exciting time to be a member of this team. Now, you guys just won a laundry list of victories, top to bottom. I just read them off. For me, of all the wins, the commitment to girls' youth hockey and developing the sport was the most powerful uh, what was it for you? The thing that gives us the most pride, I, I have to say, knowing that we set a foundation for the younger generations to build upon. Um, and that's something I'll be most proud of, you know, when I can take a second to really appreciate that, you know, years down the line, we, we did it. And, you know, it's the sky's the limit for our sport. And to be able to push it in a positive direction while we're still playing is, is a huge honor. Um, and knowing that we're going to leave the sport better off than when we came in um, is something that will be special, and it's a bond that will forever 
hold us all together, um, knowing that we've accomplished a historic landmark moment. So no doubt the team is aware that you are now part of history and you are going to become heroes for a generation of young athletes, particularly young female athletes. Who are your heroes? Who are the people who inspired you in sports history or inside or outside of sports uh, that gave you strength and that made you feel like this fight was a fight that you wanted to see to the end? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a great question. To be honest, a lot of, um, you know, the strength through this came from Cammy Granato, decorated veteran from the U.S. team, won a gold medal in 1998. And, you know, we leaned on her a lot, but she also provided us a lot of insight. But I think just my experience individually is knowing that when I was younger, I watched her on TV win a gold medal, and I wanted to be just like Cammy. Um, and then to be able to wear her jersey and to play on the U.S. team, it, it even has, like, even greater fervor in that respect just because I understand now how important it is for us to impact younger lives and the type of responsibility and role that we do play in the next generation. Um, and it's simple. It's just through sport. But it also is complicated because it is through sport. But um, knowing how these role models impact our lives is huge and now being able to be in a position in order – to push the sport forward and have some sort of impact that's similar is um, is a dream come true. What kind of music do you listen to to psych yourself up before games? I really like Beyonce, but anything that's, that's bumping and has a good beat to it, I'm usually listening to. It changes, though, you know? Well, congratulations. You are now a link in the chain in the history of athletes and activism. That's awesome. Thank you so much for your courage. Yeah, thank you. And I, I do have to do one thing. I have to give Mayor MacDougall a shout-out because she listens to your podcast all the time. Oh, that's awesome. Fantastic. Good luck in the World Championships. Awesome. Thank you so much. And now we've got on the line for another angle on the U.S. women's hockey strike, the writer who has been breaking every story along the way, really been the chronicler of what the U.S. women's team has been doing from the beginning, the author of a tremendous book about Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett called Rivals, Jeanette Howard. So first and foremost, what is the scene in Michigan right now? What are people saying around the world championships about this strike slash boycott and its success? Well, it's funny because if you think of the spectacle of a federation fighting with its athletes in an event that's going to be held in Detroit, which is, you know, it's obviously got such a labor past. Um, You know, a lot of people have sort of mentioned that here, if not elsewhere. Um, A lot of people were at the rink yesterday just kind of eyeballing the team as it practiced because they hadn't been together for so long and really only had uh, two days to prepare once they got here. They went through uh, a two-week saga since they announced the boycott, and they all admit it was kind of draining. But honestly, they barely talked about it unless anybody asked. They were really kind of already looking forward to the game. You could tell their brains have already shifted, and I think it's part of what makes them elite athletes. They're moving on. From your observations, did you see any rust and – is that a concern on the team? 
Um, I think it's a concern. It was hard to tell because, you know, they were just scrimmaging a little bit. The workout was spirited, and they were moving well and all those things. I mean, the one thing to remember about them is they're used to this kind of thing where they just show up and play, and they, it's one of the stories that sort of amplifies how dedicated they are. In non-Olympic years like this, they may only get nine games together. So they're used to, you know, working out by themselves, often in little groups. There's about seven of them, eight of them in Boston, and just keeping sharp. So it wouldn't be the transition for them that it will be for, you know, would be for other teams. One thing about women's hockey in particular compared to any other sport, male or female, is that the rivalries are particularly fierce. But what are people saying about the strike slash boycott, like particularly the Canadian team uh, who are gunning for this world championship? Yeah, they were uh, involved from the beginning. The day they announced it, uh, the Canadians tweeted and released uh, some uh, support. They uh, had an official statement, but it was more retired players that actually spoke up uh, in detail. I think that they're in a tough spot because they support the women and I think they'll be able to benefit from the games the Americans got, but at the same time, they knew this game was coming up, and I think after the game, um, we'll hear more from them. But I know, you know, off, like, back channels, they were all supportive and uh, hoping that they uh, got what they were seeking. These next three questions are questions I also asked Hillary Knight. I'm calling these questions surprised or expected, and I'd love your perspective on this. Okay, so were you surprised that the U.S. women's hockey team got so much solidarity from every damn sports union in the United States, male or female? (laughs) Um, That surprised me a bit uh, just because uh, at the start of the negotiations, it was just a blip on the radar. I I think that the idea of how much skin these guys had in the game and the fact that they were willing to sacrifice one of the few competitions they actually get to go to was uh, riveting to a lot of people. Were you surprised that USA Hockey was so aggressive to get a scab team on the ice? I expected. I uh, think just talking to people and and hearing the tenor of the negotiations to that point and some of the things that I was told off the record that were said during the talks, the tone of dismissiveness, and a lot of the women aren't sure if it was just sort of benign neglect or actual antagonism but um and you know you you do have to be fair and and say the federation did have to send somebody uh because otherwise there's only seven teams playing in the tournament but i think that it was not a surprise uh, how antagonistic it was by the end were you surprised that as it was happening all of these women hockey players from division three to under 16 to beer league players that they all stuck together almost entirely and refused to break the line and scab on this strike? Well, that one's interesting because people told me over and over, hockey's such a tight-knit community and hockey players support hockey players, and the players were not surprised. They expected it. The people beyond the hockey world were surprised. Yeah, Hillary Knight said almost exactly the same thing. Jeanette Howard, you've written so much about the history of women's sports and the fight for equality in women's sports. Do you think this strike is going to go down in history and become in time a touchstone 
that we're going to see as a link in the chain with people like Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, U.S. women's soccer team? Are we going to look back and remember this moment like that? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that it's going to help them be more competitive and, and even more formidable than they've already been. They've won six of the last seven world titles. The gold medal is the one thing that's missing. And Amanda Kessel said last night, she's 25, and she said people that were thinking of maybe quitting are going to stay in now. And so, you know, one of the things that was so riveting about the women's soccer team was people never really got to see women's teams grow old together, you know, on the world stage. And and it elevates their play because they get this almost telepathic level of a connection, you know. And and I think that it's going to help them in that regard. I think people care about them now that didn't before. I think people heard the complaints they described that are unique to women, and it rang true in their lives. That, that came up a lot on social media. People talked about how, you know, every woman that's ever played a sport knows you get the crappy field, you know, and, and you get the 10 o'clock at night start time, you know, that kind of stuff. So it resonated with people's experiences in their own lives, and I do think people are going to look back at these guys and, and, and talk about it because other people are going to build on what they gained and other federations and probably other countries, people are already talking about that here at the World Championships, are going to probably go back to their federations and say, hey, you know, hey. So I asked Hillary Knight this, so I might as well ask you this. I asked her what music she listens to to psych herself up before the big game. What music do you listen to to psych yourself up before writing the big column? <laughs> it's funny. I had uh, – it depends – I I actually listen to like moody, quiet stuff. Chet Baker. People like that. Coltrane. I don't really get the headbang and stuff because then I don't want to write. I just want to sit there and listen to the music. <laughs> Not just saying this because we're doing this interview. I also listen to Chet Baker when I write. Yeah, I love Chet Baker. Although He's somebody. Somebody the other day tweeted Bobby Caldwell's song, and I hadn't listened to that one for a long time, and that was, you know, I had to download that. <laughs> Jeanette Howard, thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Oh, no, dude, my pleasure. I admire all the work you do. Thank you so much, and thank you for writing Rivals. That book was absolutely huge for me. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I, that was a great, uh, great, great experience in my life. Awesome. All right, be well. Good luck. Thanks, Dave. Wow, thank you so much, Hillary Knight. Thank you so much, Jeanette Howard, for giving us insight on what I think is going to be a foundational moment in the history of sports and politics. There will be many other nights like this And I'll be standing here with someone new There will be other songs to sing Another fall, another spring But there will never be another you Hey, this issue of the Edge of Sports podcast is brought to you by The Nation magazine. There is a hell of an issue this week, a cover story by Chris Hayes, the host of All In on MSNBC called Policing the Colony from the American Revolution to Ferguson. It's an excerpt from his new book, A Colony in a Nation. And there's an article by Sarah Esther Maslin that, frankly, is absolutely harrowing. It's called The Salvadoran Town That Can't Forget about the El Mesote Massacre. 
please check out this latest issue of The Nation. It is absolutely gold. And now with the final four done, March Madness over, I've got some choice words about the breakout star of this year's NCAA tournament, South Carolina head basketball coach Frank Martin, who really has exploded onto the scene more than any individual player. The gruff, charismatic Martin looks like a tough Irish priest in a 1930s B-movie, and he has earned plaudits for his no-nonsense style as the Gamecocks made it to their first-ever Final Four. But there's one part of Frank Martin's charmed run through March Madness with which it is worth taking issue. It's a post-game press conference, quote, making the rounds as if it is wisdom from Mount Sinai. Here's what Martin said. You know what makes me sick to my stomach? When I hear grown people say that kids have changed. Kids haven't changed. Kids don't know anything about anything. We've changed as adults. We demand less of kids. We expect less of kids. We make their lives easier instead of preparing them for what life is truly about. We're the ones that have changed. To blame kids is a cop-out. End quote. At first glance, people's attraction to these words is understandable. It's a maxim with something for everyone. You got his exclamation that to blame kids is a cop-out, while also perpetuating the oft-heard narrative that this generation has it too easy and might as well be bubble-wrapped by overprotective helicopter parents. It's also a stereotype that aids no-nonsense millionaire NCAA coaches like Frank Martin, the kind of tough guy who is worth every penny at a state school to coach unpaid kids because he's turning these boys into men. Kids who should remain unpaid because, as Clemson football coach Dabo Sweeney said, to compensate them would be wrong because, quote, there's already enough entitlement in the world, end quote. There is, of course, a racial coding here as well, seen in sports films and TV shows like Friday Night Lights, that only tough, usually white, male coaches can turn young black boys into men. But the problem with this narrative extends beyond even that. It is also utterly fictitious, trafficking in a myth about what it means to be young in 2017. Far from being bubble-wrapped, a typical young person today has to be smarter and tougher than their parents ever were just to maintain, if not survive. Their challenges would have been incomprehensible for many of my generation. Cyberbullying, standardized test regimens, metal detectors, lockdown drills in case of lone gunmen or terror attacks. Their classrooms are overcrowded and they're getting jobs at younger ages. As someone who was once a teacher, whose partner is a high school teacher, and whose kids both go to public schools, I can tell you that the classroom has become a center for very real anxieties that are utterly age-inappropriate for the young people who must shoulder them. Muslim kids are telling their teachers and classmates that they worry about being locked up. Immigrant kids share worries of deportation or being separated from their parents. Black kids look at Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown and wonder how to navigate the police officers standing outside when school lets out. Girls deal with sexist bullshit and harassment every damn day. And yet they fight through it. When I hear millionaire coaches and sportscasters echo this statement about how quote-unquote soft kids are, I feel like they're probably talking about their own kids. 
kids whose educational and life experiences mirror the ever-growing gap between rich and poor in this country. They go to private schools with 8 to 1 teacher-student ratios and mindful meditation classes for when life gets too stressful. Yet even these kids, who we may think of as living in a cocoon of privilege, are not Trump children carbon copies, people whose only worry is how much gel to stick in their hair. I have friends who teach at these private schools, and they tell me stories of Adderall being far more prevalent than marijuana because everyone is in a constant state of freaking out about their future. Even that teenage rite of passage is drained of pleasure, more like gasoline to keep them running in time with minimal distraction from SAT prep. As for Frank Martin, his statement strikes me as particularly noxious because he, of course, is not talking about private school kids. He is talking about his own players, and it's a slander. To be a Division I athlete is an 80-hour-a-week job. NCAA athletes have never had to demand more from themselves and gotten less for their scholarship. That is the reality of the neoliberal university in the 21st century. They are athlete students, not student-athletes. Their coach makes hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they know they're being excluded, but largely feel powerless. And that's the saddest part of the entire story. Even when spoken with the amount of charity and goodwill that Frank Martin delivered his words, he benefits from painting this picture. It's a picture that maligns the very young people he is purporting to defend. I'm not worried about this generation. I'm worried about the rest of us. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up. This week, it should obviously go to the U.S. women's hockey team for their remarkable solidarity. But we've already covered that. So this week, I give it to people who should stand up, not people who have stood up, because this one is too important. This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to the future actions, because I think these actions will take place, of the Oakland taxpayers. Of course, the Raiders voted this week, or I should say the NFL voted this week, 31-1, to to allow the Oakland Raiders to become the Las Vegas Raiders, thereby smacking in the face one of the most loyal fan bases in all of sports, right when the Raiders are finally good for the first time in 15 years. Look, the Raiders are moving to Las Vegas, but they're going to stay in Oakland for the next three years. But even worse than that is that the people of Oakland still have to pay $13 million a year in stadium taxes until 2025. It's good for an estimated $95 million they're going to have to pay for a team that's leaving. They're going to be paying this for four years after the team has gone. Good God. There must be a tax revolt in Oakland. This country was founded on the idea of taxation without representation. This is taxation without Raider Nation. So stand up, Raider Nation. It's time to refuse to pay your taxes. And the Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Goes to Mark Davis, the bizarrely quaffed owner of the Oakland soon-to-be Las Vegas Raiders. So Mark Davis is planning on staying in Oakland for the next two to three years because he doesn't want to play in UNLV Stadium. So he's going to be at the Oakland Stadium where, assumedly on a weekly basis, they're going to burn him in effigy in the stands, or at least they should. And he's raising prices on tickets. He's gotten so much publicity for saying, season ticket holders can get a refund because we're moving. But he is not saying anything about the fact 
that he is raising prices on tickets. That's gotten much less publicity. I mean, as Tony Kornheiser said, that is the definition of chutzpah. And also, just sit your ass down to Mark Davis and the politicians of Las Vegas and the state of Nevada because this deal sucks for the state of Nevada for so many reasons. Yes, we talked about why it sucks for Oakland, the abuse of this incredible fan base and the fact that they're going to have to pay taxes on their stadium for another seven years, but it really sucks for Nevada. This new stadium is going to be $1.9 billion, and it will be built with the help of $750 million in state subsidies, and that is a record. So where's this money coming from? It's coming from a deal to raise hotel room taxes by 0.88%. One economist, Roger Knoll from Stanford, called this the worst deal for a city I have ever seen. Why is it such a bad deal? It's a bad deal for two reasons. First and foremost, they're raising $750 million for this stadium at a time when public class sizes in Clark County, where Las Vegas is, it's 34 to 1. That's what class sizes look like. 34 kids for every teacher. And Clark County school officials voted last spring as well to close the school for at-risk students. They said there's simply no money. This move is a political failure, a moral failure, and a horrible sign of our times. A time when we have a billionaire sexual predator president who can put forward a budget that eliminates meals on wheels while billionaires get hundreds of millions of dollars in corporate welfare. Shame on all of them. And oh, by the way, that rise in the hotel tax, what do you think is going to happen if less people go to Las Vegas because of the rise in the hotel tax? Well, that money on the stadium is still going to be spent. Where's the money going to come from? According to Slate Magazine, it will be taken out of schools and buses. So these 34 to 1 public school student-teacher ratios might actually get worse if this rise in taxes on hotel occupancy drives tourism down. This is a horrible deal for Las Vegas. It's a horrible deal for Oakland. It's only a good deal for NFL owners and ne'er-do-well sons of wealthy people like Mark Davis. And now it's time for Kaepernick Watch, where we go through the latest in the life of Colin Kaepernick, because it's been fascinating on a week-in, week-out basis, both politically and his efforts to find a team to play on. But first, a quick word about the other Nation Magazine podcast, Start Making Sense with John Wiener. This week, hey, it's the person who's got the cover story at the Nation Magazine. It's Chris Hayes, who's going to talk about the damage done to Trump and the Republicans caused by the failure of their effort to end Obamacare, but also about Chris Hayes' new book, Colony in a Nation. Also this week, they're going to have Joan Walsh on there talking about the whole Russia issue with Donald Trump and the great Amy Willens, and she is one of the great journalists of our time who is going to talk about the Trump family. Amy Willens, who's writing about Haiti, including the rainy season, is one of the great books, um, frankly, of the last 30 years. So an amazing episode of Start Making Sense. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud for new episodes. They roll out every Thursday. 
So now let's talk some Kaepernick watch for you. First and foremost, on the field, a couple of very harrowing developments. First and foremost, Colin Kaepernick still hasn't been signed. More and more people recognizing this as an absolute ridiculous state of affairs. More players speaking out, like Richard Sherman. More columnists and sports writers wondering what the hell is going on here. A couple of points that have come out this week. Uh, Doug Farrar, who's very respected tape watcher, did a big column at Bleacher Report about how if you look at the tape, that Kaepernick is not only ready to be a backup, but he's also should be a starter. And Farrar pointed out that Colin Kaepernick had 7% of his passes dropped last year. That is the highest number of any quarterback in the National Football League. And it also gives lie to one of the big things that people say to not Colin Kaepernick, that he has a low completion percentage, because I believe it was 59.7% last year. But hey, guess what? If 7% of your passes get dropped... That's kind of what happens. The other thing that happened this week with regards to Colin playing are two very bizarre anonymous leaks because they're trying to now make up excuses why they're not signing him. And these two leaks say something about the moral fiber of NFL executives, which is very weak. He's obviously being blackballed for politics, but here are a couple things that were heard this week. First and foremost, one executive said... We don't want him on our team. We think of him like we would think about signing Ray Carruth. For people who don't know who Ray Carruth is, he was a wide receiver for the Carolina Panthers who had his girlfriend, Sharika Adams, killed because she was pregnant. And with her last breath, she called 911, and her child survived. And he's still alive, and he was born with terrible disabilities, but he's become this remarkable young person. People should read his story. But Ray Carruth is somebody who, I mean, my God, had her killed. And to compare him to Colin Kaepernick is so damn insulting. Colin Kaepernick, who wanted less people killed. That's why he took a knee. Wanted less people killed. And you compare him to Ray Carruth, it just says something about the morality of NFL owners and executives. The second thing, which is even more bizarre, is that people are concerned about Colin Kaepernick's vegan diet. They're concerned about him being a vegan. Why is this so stupid? First of all, Tom Brady, a vegan. So just putting that out there first and foremost. Second of all, why is it so stupid? Think about the horse tranquilizers that Peyton Manning injected himself with. Think about all the bizarre things that NFL players put in their bodies. Horrific chemicals so they can go out on a week-in, week-out basis. And you're concerned about veganism? Really? My goodness. I guess if he flossed his teeth with gristle and then washed it all down with a big shake of stem cells, that would somehow be better. This is absurd. Find a team for Colin Kaepernick, NFL. This is getting uglier on a week-in, week-out basis. That's all we have this week for the show. Thank you so much to my co-producers, David Tigaboo and Daniel Baker. Thank you so much, Hillary Knight and Jeanette Howard. People should definitely check out her book, Rivals. It's one of my all-time favorite sports books. Yo, you can follow us on Twitter. Never forget, at Edge of Sports Pod. And also, don't forget, you can always contact me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at gmail.com. And hey, guess what? We got t-shirts now. We got Edge of Sports t-shirts, and they are fly. So go to edgeofsports.com, and you will see a button on the right-hand side of the page that you can click and get yourself a dope t-shirt. Union-made, of course. We're not playing around with sweatshops here. We're not Ivanka Trump. 
But thank you, everybody, for listening. If you like the show, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, make a comment, make a rating. It makes a huge difference to the show. If you want to call us up, you always can at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. And if you want to go to edgeofsportspodcast.com, you can always listen to back episodes of the show. For everybody out there, thank you so much for listening. Stay frosty, people. We are out of here. Peace. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.